I love camping. Anytime my friends and I came home from college, we would load up our cooler with beer, grab some gear, and go screw around outside. Unfortunately, when I was actually at school, none of my sorority sisters or other friends ever wanted to go with me, so I would often suffer withdrawals from camping. One day, the weather was way too nice to waste, so I grabbed some of my gear, hopped in a car I borrowed from a buddy, and drove to a spot that was secluded yet within safe distance to civilization that I could run and get help if needed. Camping also creeps me out sometimes, but that scary feeling is also somewhat of a plus for me. It's the same reason that people read these stories. It's fun to be scared. So I make a little camp and get a fire going. I hadn't brought all that much to eat, but I was enjoying myself, reading and looking around the area, that sort of thing. I got the feeling I was being watched and stopped dead in my tracks. I heard a twig crunch over to my right, and then I saw a doe bolt from a hundred feet or so in front of me. I laughed at myself and went back to the camp with an armful of wood I had gathered. I kept freaking myself out, hearing sounds just outside the ring of light cast by the fire. I always get inside my head, so I shrugged it off and kept whittling at a stick I'd been messing with. Around one, I decided to go into my tent and snuff out the lantern. I had been slamming beers in the most unladylike fashion, smoking cheap cigars. Another reason I like camping, I can act however I want. So I passed out relatively quick. About two o'clock, I start hearing footsteps. They sound pretty light and sort of timid. I think to myself it's a deer or other animal, more likely a raccoon because I probably left some food out. I'm still on guard though. About 30 minutes of sleeping with one eye open and I hear a rubbing noise. The tent fabric is being pushed in a bit. I don't know how I didn't shit my sleeping bag, but I just sat there paralyzed with my K-bar in my hands. I desperately wanted to thrust a knife through the tent fabric but I was still holding out hope that it was some of my buddies from a frat joking with me. And then, as suddenly as it began, it all stopped. I was starting to feel slightly more secure, because daylight would be coming in about two or three hours, but I sure as shit wasn't going to go to sleep. All of a sudden, at about four o'clock, I realized I should put my boots on so that if anything did happen, I would be ready. After having stayed up, and keeping alert a little while longer. My friend's car alarm starts blaring. I freak the fuck out and run out of the tent. I got about two steps before something grabs me around the mouth. I open my mouth to scream, but instead the person's pinky finger slips between my teeth. I've heard that people can perform superhuman feats when they have huge adrenaline rushes. In my case, I just clamped down, and there's no way to say this without sounding ridiculous. His finger just popped off. He screamed and pulled his hand away with the missing digit falling to the ground. He took off running down the hill I was camping on and I took off right quick in the opposite direction. I must have looked ridiculous to the people whose house I ran to. A little sorority girl in a wife beater, boxers, and steel toe boots. I also had some blood that oozed out of my lip. Not from my finger but because I had also managed to take a pretty good chunk out of my lip as well. I told them what happened. They called the police, got me some real clothing, 
and the man at the house made me a whiskey and coke. When the cops got there, they went to check it out, and when they came back, it was light out. They brought me back so I could get my friend's car, and what I saw just made me more scared. Right next to the tent was a red gas can. He could have just lit me on fire earlier. The finger was also gone, suggesting that he had come back. The kicker is, they never caught the guy. So somewhere out there is a man sitting down to dinner, maybe alone, maybe with a wife and a couple of kids. And he's missing his right pinky. I'm a soldier in the United States Army, and I'm currently a little over halfway through a deployment in Iraq. About a month ago, they sent a couple guys from my platoon home for various reasons. Gym-related injuries, family tragedies, children being born, etc. So this left us a bit short-handed. I ended up with an extra guard shift at the motor pool, which is a big parking lot for military vehicles from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Four rolls around, our replacements show up, and we're relieved right on time. I grab my weapon and head back to my room. I had just passed through the small opening in the T-wall barrier and was about 50 meters from the shack I was staying in when something caught my eye on the cement sidewalk in front of me. I stopped dead in my tracks. In front of me, about 30 feet or so, was a black and white cat. I don't know why, but the sight of it caused me to jump, and for some reason, I was just afraid. Not typical like, oh shit kind of fear, but more of an overwhelming anxiety or paranoia. The cat just sat there, and didn't move, but looked directly at me. Then I noticed something a little odd. I have a cat back in the States, who's the absolute light of my life. A black cat with white paws, a white chest, and a little sliver of white running down the length of his face. This cat looked exactly like mine. Now, obviously I knew that it wasn't, but the sight of a familiar looking feline friend was enough for me to somewhat relax the jumpy feeling I had previously felt. I took about three steps forward, slung my rifle to my side, and crouched down with one arm outstretched in an attempt to coax the cat to come over. My lips pursed when I became completely paralyzed with fear. From my eye level standing at about six feet, to my eye level crouching at about three feet, the animal I was seeing looked completely different, as if my visual perspective completely changed the appearance of the animal. Like one of those optical illusion perspective-based art sculptures, what I was looking at no longer looked like a cat, but a large, broad, dog-like animal crouched with its head lowered just inches off the ground. All rationality abandoned me at this point, and all I could do was stare back at whatever it was. I couldn't make out much of a face. The only light source around was from a street lamp about 50 meters behind me past the T-wall. What I was able to make out were its eyes, which I could see clearer than daylight, and they were human. Look into a mirror and open your eyes as wide as you possibly can. That's pretty much what I was looking at. It just stared at me, and I stared back. I will tell you now, 
that I have never been more terrified in my entire life. I slowly stood back up, half expecting whatever I was looking at to take on the appearance of a cat once again, but it didn't. The thing did not move a fucking inch through this whole encounter. At this point, my weapon wasn't even enough to make me feel safe. I backed away slowly, all the while keeping my eyes on what was in front of me. I had just about reached the gap in the T-wall again when the thing just disappeared. It didn't back away and vanish into the shadows. It just kind of steadily wasn't there anymore. But right before it vanished entirely, I heard what sounded like a low, but somehow loud, guttural growling noise that resonated off the T-walls surrounding the area with the rooms. Needless to say, as soon as I passed back through the T-wall, I fucking bolted. I ran as fast as my legs could carry me, with all my gear on, to my team leader's room across the gravel road. I took a moment to calm myself before entering his room. I slept on this floor that night, blaming it on the fact that we had to get up early and the alarm on my phone hadn't been working lately. I haven't seen anything since then, but every other night or so, when I'm by myself, I'll get that same horribly overwhelming sense of anxiety and paranoia that I got when I first saw the thing. If anyone has any information on what this might have been or what may have happened, it would be greatly appreciated. If you have any questions about anything I may have failed to cover or left out, feel free to ask, and I'll answer as best I can. About midnight a few days ago, Thursday to be exact, I was simply relaxing at home, watching a few DVDs before heading to bed, when I was interrupted by a knock at the door. As I normally do, I attempted to switch on the outdoor patio light, which conveniently blew up as I flicked the switch. Nevertheless, I opened the door. There were two kids at the door. Both looked as though they were 12 or 13. The first one, which decided to stand back off the porch, was short and wore a plain red t-shirt and cargo shorts. I couldn't see much of him to be honest, so I can't say too much about what he looked like. The second, who I assume knocked on the door, was slightly taller than the first kid, and he wore a plain green t-shirt, also with cargo shorts. He had medium-length black curly hair sitting under a plain green baseball cap. Due to the conveniently blown light bulb, I also couldn't see him clearly as well. This was compounded by the fact that the streetlights in my street were out. So, I opened the door and asked what they wanted. The first kid answered, Good day, mate. We were just wondering if we could come in and get our kitten out of your backyard. Now three things were odd about that immediately. I've never heard a 13-year-old kid say to me, Good day, mate, as a greeting. Usually it's hi or hey. It was like he was trying to be stereotypically Aussie. His accent was weird. Halfway through Australian and English. It appeared as though he was faking it. When I was 13... I was not going around on weekdays at midnights. I don't know about the rest of you. Now considering the three points above, I was kind of taken back by the odd request. I said, Okay, I can go get it for you. To which he replied, No mate, we insist that we come get her. She gets really scared by strangers. Again, this was unusual. He called me mate again in that weird accent 
and his claim about the cat didn't really seem valid. Now, this time, I actually consider letting them in, but the weirdness factor actually overcame that. I asked, How old are you, buddy? To which the one at the back replied, and I must say enthusiastically, 16. He too had the same weird accent. I said, You don't look 16. The kid closest to the door started becoming a little tense and changed the subject back. Look, mate, we really need to come in and get our kitten. I was a bit shocked how his friendly tone turned hostile so quickly. So I replied, Look, kid, if you're going to be rude, you won't be getting your kitten back. He apologized. Sorry, mate, but please, we really need to get our cat. The other replied, Please, let us in. Now it's becoming very suspicious of their intentions. A lot of stuff has been happening lately here in Australia, like assaults, home burglaries, where adults have been bashed by kids. It's becoming more frequent. So naturally, my next instinct was to subtly see if I could spot any concealed weapons. What happened next actually shocked me. The first kid said, We don't have any weapons on us. Dumbfounded, I almost responded. How did you know I was thinking that? But changing the subject to avoid them becoming more suspicious, what I actually said was, Does your mother know you're out this late? He replied, Come on, mate. Just let us in or our mother will get angry if we don't come home with the kitten. By this time, I had enough. I said, Tell you what, give me your phone number and I'll call your mom back tomorrow. And if I find the kitten, I'll bring it back. I almost again opened the door to give them paper and pen. There was paper and pen near the front door on a table, so I didn't have to leave the room. As I moved my hand back to the door, the kid stepped right up to it. This is where it turned from unusual to creepy. He had a really strange grin on his face, and I could see his eyes were completely black. That made me immediately jerk back from the door. I said, Okay, you need to get away from my front door now. He answered, We're just kids, mate. Let us get our kitten. I replied, Leave now or I'm calling the cops. Both the kids simply stared at me at this point. That really freaked me out and I had the sneaking suspicion that they wanted to do something to me. To show them I was serious, I turned back and grabbed my mobile phone with the intention of making it look like I was serious about making a call to the cops. But when I turned back, they were gone. Just like that, so I shut the door. I had a bit of a desire to go out there and see where they went, but I also had a bad feeling about the events that just occurred. The whole thing lasted for about two and a half minutes, but it was the most bizarre thing that's ever happened to me. I'm not someone that has had lifetime experiences of being in contact with paranormal phenomena, and I believe most of that stuff is either rubbish or a case of mistaken identity, so I'm actually looking for an explanation to this. Was it kids playing a prank with black contacts? Has anyone had similar experiences? I would really love to hear them. This happened in 1999, when I was a sophomore in high school and 14 years old. I had just moved back to America from the Middle East, where I'd spent about 5 or 6 years. Because of the standard of dress there, and the fact that my old school had uniforms, and I had no social life, 
I didn't own a t-shirt, let alone a pair of jeans. Every day, I went to school wearing a long dress or a long skirt, with my mousy blonde hair tied back with a scarf used like a headband, as opposed to a headscarf. I never did that, except out of respect for my host country on religious holidays. I was awkward, mousy, and had a hard time making friends. This was a few years before 9-11, but in my little town, there was still animosity towards anyone different. And with my British-English accent and the fact of where I grew up, I was pretty different. I only really had three friends, Joe, Nathan, and Kenny. Joe lived on my bus route, though he was way out in the middle of the country, so he and his two younger brothers were always the first on the bus in the morning and the last off the bus in the evening. Our day always followed the same schedule. I'd get on the bus, go sit next to Joe, we talk a little bit until we got to school. Then we hang out with Nathan and Kenny for a bit and go to our separate classes. I was in advanced placement classes and they were in regular ones, so I didn't share any with them. But every other day our lunches coincided, so the four of us would get to eat together. Then, in the evenings, Kenny and Nathan would get picked up and Joe and I would take the bus home. I don't really remember how we started dating, I think Joe told me that he liked me, and I said I liked him back. We would hold hands on the bus and at lunch, while Kenny and Nathan teased us relentlessly. It was so innocent, even for 14. Joe was sweet and thoughtful and completely non-threatening. He was the type to always make sure you had the better half of something, always the first to offer his coat when you were cold, and was always pulling out chairs and holding doors open. A real gentleman, which of course... Kenny and Nathan teased relentlessly. This went on for a few weeks, though it stayed strictly at school. We weren't able to see each other outside of school because he always had to go straight home or his mother would be furious. Sometimes he would come to school with bruises, but he always said it was from roughhousing with his brothers. I didn't really have a reason to doubt him. Then one day, there was an upcoming half day from school. Joe suggested he come over to my place and we could have our first afternoon together. We were both so excited. He would take the bus to my stop and then either walk or my parents would drive him home later. It was going to be great and I was beside myself with excitement. Everything went smoothly until the actual day. One of his brothers had found out about his plan and told his mother. She, in turn, called up to the school apparently shrieking like a banshee and demanding that he come home not a minute late or he'd be in for a world of hurt. He told me at my stop that he would go home, talk to her, and then get back as soon as he could, even if he had to walk. I was worried, but he kissed my cheek and said everything would be fine and he'd be there in an hour or so. So I went inside and waited and waited and when I got tired of waiting inside, I went out with my dog and waited, and waited. I thought about calling him, but the one time I had tried before, his mother had spewed so much venom at me for daring to call their house that the idea made me cringe internally. So I just waited. Eventually, the sun went down and he never showed up and never called. I was disappointed, but I decided it was probably for the best and went about my evening as usual. The next morning, when I got on the bus for school, the bus driver, 
A middle-aged woman with really pretty graying hair looked at me and suddenly started sobbing. I thought that was odd, but it was kind of a dreary day in general, so maybe I was reading too much into it. I started heading for the back of the school bus and noticed that Joe wasn't there. Neither were his two brothers. That was odd. I started to get a little worried, but I thought that their mother had taken them to school herself that day. The bus route went along as normal for a while until we came to a section of heavily forested area where the driver pulled over. She was shaking and crying and just not acting like herself. Almost immediately, I looked out the window and saw three policemen walking up to the bus. Apparently, they had pulled up behind her. She talks to them for a moment and then one leads her off. Another takes the wheel and the third one comes and sits by me. Neat, I get to sit next to an officer, I thought. And then I thought I was in trouble, especially since there were so many other open seats. But he was very friendly and we chatted about school and life until we got to campus. Then both remaining officers followed us inside. I went to meet up with the boys where I usually did, but Joe wasn't there either. Neither of them had seen him, but we just hoped he was okay and went about our morning. In first period, I received a page to come to the office immediately. I thought this was about some scholarships I had been working on, but I thought it was weird that they'd pull me out of class. When I got there, the principal, the counselor, and the police were all there. I suddenly felt like a caged rabbit. And then, they told me what happened. The night before, when Joe had gotten home, he had told his mother that he was going to come see me. And that was final. Obviously, it was very much not final. They argued about it. She grounded him and it came to blows. I found out later that his mother had been very abusive to Joe, which doesn't excuse what happened, but it does add some understanding, at least to me. After the confrontation was over, he laid in bed all night, planning what he would do. He decided he was going to wait for his brothers to go to the school bus and hang back, telling them he would drive himself to school, which wasn't too far out of the ordinary. Once they were all gone, he would take the butcher knife from the kitchen and finish his argument with his mother once and for all. The next morning, everything went as planned for the most part. He got his brothers up and dressed and out for school and watched until they were at the end of the long driveway to wait for the bus. Then, while his mother was sleeping, he went into her room and stabbed her multiple times. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, the gloomy weather was causing troubles with the bus. I don't know the details, but I know it was a few minutes late starting its route. One thing I realized while writing this, and that Hollywood seems to miss half the time, is that when you stab someone while they're sleeping, they tend to wake up. And she did. She screamed and tried to fight back, but he was too determined and too strong. Since the bus was running late, the brothers were still standing on the side of the road when they heard the screaming. They both turned and ran back to try and help. They tried to defend their mother, but Joe turned on them, slicing one of them across the palms and the other in the gut. Then he ran. When the bus arrived, she saw one of the brothers staggering up the driveway covered in blood. In her panic, she kept going and called the police. Eventually, he made it to a corner store a little ways away. 
Some stories say it was the stabbed brother and that he crawled there, but I can't confirm that, nor do I really want to. After the police finished questioning me, I was sent home. I remember laying on my parents' bed, staring at the TV while the live coverage of his capture played. Or maybe it was a repeat. I don't know. But I remember seeing the news chopper, filming, as the police helicopter followed after Joe as he ran across the field. There was a cop perched out the door and braced on one of the landing struts. And as the chopper got lower, he jumped out and tackled him. That was the last time I ever saw Joe. The part that creeps me out, though, is what happened afterwards. He pled guilty and was sentenced to 40 years for murder and 20 for the assault on his brother. Not long after, the letter started. I never kept any, but they were long, crazy ramblings about how we would be together forever, how he did it for me, how he truly loved me and would do anything to be with me. No regret, no remorse. He was happy about what he did, if it meant I was his. We moved a little while later, and the letter stopped. I'm happily married now, getting on with my own life. But every time I think about him, I remember that he's up for parole in 2020. And what happens when he gets out? What happens if he comes looking for me? Best case scenario? He realizes I've moved on, and we part amicably. But worst case, keeps me up at night. So I was on my way to a call just now. I'm a police officer. And after turning left onto the street, I saw that a couple of guys were walking across the road. I slowed down and kind of went to the left so I wouldn't hit them. But they continued to walk slowly up until the point I was about 20 feet away. They were staring at me the whole time. One of the guys then stopped just before the sidewalk and began throwing his hands up while yelling at me. While this didn't really piss me off, I definitely wanted to make contact with him and let him know how crosswalks work and that his precious baby steps weren't as important as the call I was going to. I was not even close to them by any margin and their safety wasn't at risk. If it was, then I could understand it angering him. I drove by, went to the call, and when it was over, I went back to the gas station that these guys most likely walked to. As I went through the parking lot looking inside for them, I was struck by this weird feeling that I can only describe as being completely mind blank. The only thought I had was, it's not worth it, just leave. I always want to follow my gut, so I just pulled out and drove away. Well, as I pulled out, I got a text from someone, and as soon as my phone vibrated, my mind started playing the scene out as if it was a legitimate memory. Basically, I had gone into the store and found these guys coming out of the restroom. I made contact and start talking to the guy about him not having to get the way that he did. He starts to get angry and pulls out a gun from his waistband, and we get into a firefight that ends with him dead and me bleeding out on the floor. Well, me not wanting to text and drive, I waited until I got to my favorite spot and pulled my phone out to find a text from my girlfriend that says, Are you okay? For some reason, I got this awful feeling that you weren't. She's never texted me something like that before, even though she does worry a lot, and I've been in much worse situations than some guy being a jerk. Not sure if you would consider this a glitch or quantum immortality, 
I just thought I'd post it since I love this sub and thought that what had happened was pretty neat. I've been reading stories on here for a while now, and I figured I'd post my own. I had to get my brother to help recount this as I was 12 at the time, and scared shitless as a result. This happened about 6 years ago. As I stated, I was about 12, and my brother was 26 at the time. My brother had been serving in the US Army for several years when this happened, and was deploying to the Middle East on his second deployment if I remember correctly. Also of note was that he is a Green Beret and had recently, three or four months prior to this trip, completed the Army Special Forces Qualification Course, and by then was an active duty Engineer Sergeant. Definitely not someone you'd want to fuck around with. Given that we both grew up with a passion for the outdoors, he thought it would be nice to take me on a backpacking trip in northern Alabama, the Sipsy Wilderness, for those familiar with the area before he left for nine months. The trip had gone smoothly up until the third night we were camping out. Around 8pm, we had our camp set up and were sitting by the fire, talking about typical boy shit, guns, girls, etc. For some reference, our spot was about 50 yards from a large stream and about 50 yards downhill adjacent to the large path. Our camp, the stream, and the path formed a triangle of sorts. This was summertime in Alabama, so it wasn't quite dark yet when two guys, who looked to be in their late 20s, wandered up and asked if we had seen any hogs while we were hiking around. Given that this is rural Alabama, we actually had seen some farther into the wilderness area and told them so. Even though they were relatively polite, my brother called them good old boys, I got a seriously creepy vibe from them. Dirty clothes, greasy hair scraggly facial hair, etc. I think they probably looked like they belonged in the movie Deliverance. They kinda hung out for a few minutes, maybe a little longer than he should have, looking around, asking us questions like how long we had been out there and how long we were staying, and what looked like them kinda sizing us up. They then abruptly said goodbye and walked away. I didn't necessarily feel threatened by them, and I know for sure my brother didn't, but I still felt uneasy about the whole thing. Fast forward three or four hours. My brother and I had gone to sleep and were nestled in our tent when I woke to the sound of multiple dogs barking. I've always been a heavy sleeper and they sounded like they were only about a hundred yards away. My heart immediately started pounding and I kicked my brother through my sleeping bag and asked if he was awake and had heard the dogs. He responded, I'm awake. They've been getting closer for the past hour or so. Just lie still and don't make any sounds. Needless to say, 12-year-old me was about to shit my pants. We would also hear sporadic shouts from several different sources, but neither came any closer. A few minutes later, my brother whispered, They're just hunting for hogs. They use the dogs to pin them down and then they shoot them. This gave me some relief, but not much. Somehow, I managed to fall back asleep. The fact that they were doing this at night was a huge red flag, my brother later told me, but I think he was just trying to keep me calm. Fast forward what was probably another 3 hours, around 2am. I had managed to sleep pretty well after first hearing the hog hunters, 
when I woke up to my brother squeezing my shoulder firmly, saying, Wake up, put your shoes on quick and follow me. Be as quiet as you can. My heart immediately went back to racing because I heard the dogs and voices in the distance, farther away than before, but still distinct. Not asking any questions, I did what he said, and as soon as we were out of the tent, he told me to get on his back. This was a breeze for him, after rocking with God knows how much weight in the army. We snuck about 50 yards into the woods towards the junction of the path and the stream and crawled into some bushes. It was up a hill, so we had a pretty good, elevated view of our campsite. I remember as we were lying there, how loudly I was breathing, and how quiet he was. When I heard the very distinct sound of a pistol slide racking, I looked over and my brother had his pistol, an HKUSP, that he gave to me a few years after this story took place, and was watching the campsite and surrounding area. I started to whisper to him when he put his hand over my mouth and pointed at the campsite. The group of hunters had been steadily approaching our camp, and by this time, 30 or so minutes, had reached it. There were five of them and like three or four dogs. They all looked relatively young, but two had either rifles or shotguns, and the dogs were going crazy, obviously having smelled our scent. For those of you who are backpackers or campers, nobody who comes up on a random camp in the middle of the night with dogs and guns has good intentions. I knew this, and my brother knew this. I was scared shitless. I couldn't make out what they were saying, but my brother later told me they were talking about us, although he hadn't heard any specifics either. They lingered for about 20 minutes, shining flashlights around and talking to themselves, when my brother put his mouth to my ear and said, If they come towards us, I want you to turn and run as quickly as you can. Don't stop. Don't look back. Stay off the trail and look for the flashing lights. I didn't know what he meant by this, but that will come later. I knew I could make it back because he had taught me land navigation pretty well. He then handed me a flashlight and told me not to take the red filter off. He told me later that the red filter helps preserve night vision and cuts down ambient light so it would be harder for someone to see from a distance. At this point, I was so scared I almost started crying, but at the same time had a rush of adrenaline and what I think now was confidence that he thought I could handle myself. We lay there for a while longer, when out of nowhere, they started screaming, Where y'all at? and firing into the woods at random. My brother dragged me back behind the crest of the hill and threw himself on top of me. Thankfully, at our position on top of the hill, we were protected from any gunfire. They shot maybe five or six more times, and then started walking back the direction they had come. They got maybe a hundred yards away when I heard a blaring siren and saw emergency lights flashing through the woods. Turns out, my brother had called the Forest Service office on a satellite phone my family has for emergencies while I was asleep, and they had sent out the Forest Service officers and game wardens to our area of the wilderness. The Sipsi Wilderness is about 25,000 acres in size, so it took them a while to get there on the dirt roads. When we saw the game warden's truck, my brother signaled them with the light and pointed them in a the direction the hunters had gone, and the guy sped off, shining his spotlight through the woods. As soon as they were all gone, we went back to our camp, packed up our shit, and waited by the path for the game warden to come back, who then gave us a ride in his truck bed back to the main staging area. 
On the drive back, my brother told me how brave I had been and that we would talk about it with our parents the next day if I wanted to. I asked him not to do that because I thought they might never let me go camping again. Creepy rednecks in the woods, let's not meet again. You might get shot next time. Follow up. We never got any definitive information on what happened to the rednecks we encountered. I have many friends who have gone out to the Sipsy area and had a great time with no creepy stuff going on. However, it is truly a wilderness area, and law enforcement response, if you can even reach them, would be slow. I was lucky that my brother was there and reacted so quickly. Otherwise, who knows what could have happened. We also got lucky that whatever their intentions were, they either reconsidered or lost interest. I will note that when they left our camp, the game warden showed up pretty soon afterwards, but I didn't see what the guys and their dogs did. If I remember correctly, they headed in a direction parallel to the stream, away from the trail, inaccessible to any kind of vehicle. Maybe the warden continued on and took another trail to try and cut them off. We waited around 30 minutes for him to come back, and he said there were officers out looking. There are only so many paths that you could take a truck or quad bike down, so any thorough search effort would also have to be done on foot. This story takes place about two years ago. My aunt, married into the family, has cousins not related to me, who live on a farm in LaPointe, Utah on a reservation, and thought it would be fun to have all us other cousins go stay there for a few days and see the Dinosaur National Monument. My aunt's grandmother had recently passed away, and her house was basically empty, so we were to stay there. It was a pretty old house, to say the least. It was made out of painted white cinder blocks. It was pretty run down, but we were only staying there a few days, so we didn't care how luxurious it was. The front door led into a small kitchen, and off the kitchen to the right was a small room with a TV, two couches, and a chair. Off of that room was a larger living room area, with two more pull-out couches, and a door leading to the side of the house. Off the living room was a hall that led to two small bedrooms and a bathroom. It was a pretty small house, considering we had around 18 people staying there. Along with the old empty house we were staying in, there were two other houses on the property, belonging to my aunt's cousins and their families. These were the only houses for about two miles. There were 12 kids in total, ranging from ages 3 to 16, me being the oldest, as well as two other kids who lived in the other houses, who wanted to come stay with us. We all slept on pull-out couches and the floor. Other than the parents, there were two other people who were staying there. They were soon to be married, so they were staying there for a few days before the wedding. It was a whole big mess of people, but bear with me. They didn't want to sleep in the same house because they weren't married. So the guy, we'll call him B, was sleeping in a small camper outside while his fiancée slept in one of the bedrooms. Now... We can get to the actual creepy shit. On the first night we were there, 
Me and one of the cousins were on the pull-out couch in the first little room. While all the other kids were either on the couches or the floor in either our room or the other. It was about midnight. Most of the kids were already asleep. We were watching Disney movies and dozing off. When we started to hear strange noises outside in the direction of a nearby field. It sounded like a low growling and panting, but not entirely like it was coming from an animal. There was just this weird human-like sound to it. I assumed it was some sort of stray animal and got up to see when one of the other kids who lived next door, we'll call him L, jumped up and told me to just ignore it and go to sleep. I was really confused and the noises were still happening, but the terrified look on his face told me I should listen. The creature would pace around the house and stop by the door in the kitchen for a few minutes before continuing to circle the house. Neither of us got any sleep that night. The next night was basically the same setup. Kids sleeping everywhere, movies playing, a few people still dozing off. I was exhausted from the night before and managed to fall asleep when I was woken up by one of the youngest kids quietly crying and crawling into bed with me. We'll call him A. I asked him what was the matter, and he said he was scared by the big dog outside the window. I turned to L and asked if they had a dog. He looked completely scared shitless and said no, and told me to ignore it once again. I stayed up for a while after that, watching movies with A, when he asked me to walk him to the bathroom. A little bit of explanation before I continue. This house was shaped kind of like a short L, the bottom part being the kitchen and the two living rooms, and where it turns was the hallway with the bedroom and bathroom. The bathroom was right at the beginning of the hall. There was a small window where you could see the wall, where the first living room was straight ahead with a window so you could see the living room, where we were sleeping, and then the rest of the house to the left. Anyways, I walk A to the bathroom and switch on the light when we see it. An extremely tall, dog-like creature standing on its hind legs, facing the window looking into the living room. Its fur was matted and its eyes seemed to be almost glowing orange-red. Its hands look human-like, but with dark fur and long claws. A screamed and the creature ran around the side of the house on its hind legs. I picked up A and carried him back to the living room to find L, quickly closing the curtains. What the hell is that? I whispered to L. I don't know. If you ignore it, it'll go away, he whispered back. You've seen it before? Only a couple of times, but not recently. What the fuck? Our talking woke up L's younger sister, and surprisingly nobody else. I'm guessing she knew what was going on, because she seemed just as scared as we were. I sat A down on the bed and turned the TV up louder, drowning out the sounds the creature was making outside, and hoping to calm A down a bit and take our minds off whatever the fuck we just saw. The noises circling the house continued for about a half an hour more, when they stopped at the back door in the other room. I peered my head around the corner to face the door. It was kind of like one of those doors that the top half is just a screen, and then there was another separate door that wasn't closed. 
the door handle on the first door started moving back and forth, and you could see the silhouette of something huge behind it. I rushed over and shut and locked the other door, trying not to wake everyone else. Just as I did, B, the guy sleeping in the camper outside, who was also L's uncle, burst through the kitchen door, slamming it behind him. L asked B what was going on, but he didn't say a word and rushed down the hall and into the bedroom his fiancée was in. He came out holding a shotgun and pulled a chair into the corner of the living room, giving him a view of both the kitchen and the back door. He gave us a look of both terror and anger. He told us to go to sleep. We didn't. He sat there all night until the noises stopped around sunrise, then went back outside into the camper without saying a word. I'm surprised no one else woke up, and no one else knows what happened that night. The next morning, there were huge paw prints around the house, and B was discussing something with L's dad, who lived in one of the other houses. They both looked concerned and scared. It was very unsettling. We left later that day for reasons I can't remember, but I'm glad we did. I didn't want to spend another night in that house, and I'm pretty sure what we saw that night was a skinwalker. This has haunted me for a long time. I was about 19 or 20 at the time, and I was living in Savannah, Georgia. I drank a lot. I had a crappy fake ID. I worked this terrible job as a grunt laborer. The kind where you go to those temp labor agencies like Able Body and Labor Finders. I'd show up at 4 a.m., work until 5 p.m., and drink myself to sleep after only taking home maybe $60 for the day. I was supposed to go into work this particular morning, but I decided to skip. It's a labor agency. They'll just find somebody else. I call the girlfriend and tell her I want to go to Tybee Beach. I had already started drinking. She comes over, we hop in my big ugly van, pack up some rods, and head to the beach. I decided to have a drink across from the beach at this little bar. This is where the story gets interesting. Shortly after ordering my drink, I get this really weird feeling. I become hyper aware of my surroundings. The door opens, and I see this guy walk in out of my peripheral vision. There was a seat between me and my girlfriend, but the bar was empty. It was like 9am. He could have sat anywhere else, but he chooses to sit right between her and I. Then, he starts doing this thing with his fingers. The bar top was reflective, and he takes his fingers like two little legs, and starts walking with them, skating with them on top of the counter. This isn't something out of the ordinary. But I took notice because when I was in school, I did that all the time. I pretended I had rollerblades on my fingers and that I was skating around my desk. I hated school and was always distracting myself. So I became kind of mesmerized for some reason. That's when he looks at me. And in this really thick kind of Germanic or Nordic accent, he says, I notice you're a man who pays attention to detail. I'm also a man who pays attention to detail. 
Now, before I continue, I have to describe this guy. He had this short, spiky hair that was bleached at the tips. Kind of like a late 90s style. He had really expensive clothes on. Like, a nice Prada leather jacket, designer jeans, and really nice boots. He seemed like a kind of gay guy with awesome fashion sense and really distinctive taste. I always remember this because I think to myself, some weird homeless crazy guy couldn't have afforded those clothes. The other thing that stuck out was his eyes. They were piercing gray. It reminded me of like a husky's eyes, but his pupils just stayed this disturbing pinpoint size. They were just extremely small which caused his look to be kind of terrifying. His teeth were normal, right? But not at the same time. I don't know how to explain it. They were sharper than they should be, as if they were filed slightly. His hands were normal, but his fingernails were slightly long and pointed, as if he deliberately did it. And he kept licking his teeth, too, as if he were salivating. The thing about this guy is that you look at him and everything seems normal, but off at the same time. So you're questioning if you're crazy for thinking this. This guy then begins to start talking about the relationship between me and my girlfriend. But really strangely, he's talking about how beautiful she is and how I should pay more attention to her. I was kind of a dick to her. Shortly after he began talking like this, I had this almost knowing feeling come over me, like I knew this guy was not human. I look at my girlfriend and say, you need to leave. She just kind of looks at me like she knows too. Without a word of protest, she gets up quietly and leaves. Later I learn that she went next door to get a coffee. That's when this guy literally says to me with the utmost confidence, you were supposed to go fishing today. He points at the beach across the street. If you had, I would have drowned you in that ocean. And I shit you not, he fucking hissed. Again, for some reason, this overwhelming calm had come over me. I just ask, who are you? He answers back with this crazy guttural language. It sounded Arabic or Hebrew or something. I just, for some reason, without skipping a beat, and I have no idea why I was so calm to this day, ask, say it in a way that I can understand. He says, you can call me Jimmy C. I jumped off the San Francisco Bridge years ago, and we've been watching you. From there on out, he never referred to himself as me or I, but only we. The conversation became something very strange after this. He keeps buying me drinks, too. Specifically whiskey sours. It was like he had an endless supply of money. After I don't know how long, I told him I'm going to leave. I walk next door, I get my girlfriend, and she's stone silent. We start driving home. Then I just ask, Do you know what that was? And she just says, that was a demon. This girl had parents that were scientists. She was really analytical, completely non-religious, 
And that was the first thing she said out of her mouth. Now, I didn't say this part before, because to me, this is the most important aspect of the story, so I'll say it now, because it's what happened after this that has screwed me up for fucking years. The last thing this Jimmy C guy said to me before I left is this. Look at my car. I look outside, and I see one of those newer Volkswagen Beetles. It was white. What does the license plate say? I look at the plate, and it literally says fierce. He looks me dead in the eyes and says, The next time you see me, I'll be driving a black Mercedes, and the license plate will say Utopia. That night, I was still calm. I don't know why. I felt like that guy on office space after his hypnotherapist died right in front of him and he was weirdly zen. But my girlfriend started having terrible nightmares of this guy's head just staring at her in her dreams. Weeks went by, and that's when the encounter started affecting me. I found myself becoming paranoid about that black fucking Mercedes. Every black car I saw, I checked if it was a Mercedes. If it was, I immediately looked at the license plate. I started doing it when I watched TV or movies as well. I couldn't stop. Now, I'm going to fast forward a bit. About 10 years go by. I'm 29, so this is just recently. And in silence, when I'm alone, when I'm drinking, I often think about this encounter. I still look at black Mercedes every time they passed, but I'm not so much anxious about it anymore as I am curious. And I remember that my girlfriend at the time always kept a journal. By now, I'm pretty sure that I'm insane. Maybe I was drunk. Maybe I'm not remembering any of this correctly. After years of trying to find news articles of a Jimmy C that committed suicide off the San Francisco Bridge, looking at black cars and so on, I feel like I'd grown out of it. Yet, I still had to know. So last year, I tracked down my ex-girlfriend. We ended on bad terms. I find out that she's a school teacher in Wisconsin, has married a woman, and is actually trying to have a child. I figure she's not going to talk to me, but I send her a Facebook message anyway. I ask her if she can find the journal from that day, because I have to know if her events line up with mine. Sure enough, she had it, and it contained even more detail than what I remembered, because she had literally written it at the coffee shop next door right after it happened. When I read what she had written, literally that day, I knew that I wasn't imagining the details wrong, that this actually happened. This is probably the single most frustrating and scary thing that has ever happened to me. I want to imagine it's just a normal crazy guy, but unless you saw it and felt it and heard him talk about all the little details of what you were supposed to do that day, when only you knew, you just can't understand the impact of it. It's been 10 years, and my only solace really is that my ex-girlfriend was there to corroborate. That communication, where I reached out to her, actually caused us to be on good terms again after a decade. It seems to have been something that bothered her just as much as it bothered me. And still, to this day, even though I'm living 10,000 miles away in Southeast Asia, I can't stop looking for that car. 
I can't stop thinking about Jimmy C's twisted face. I wonder if he still crawls on my back, and if the fear I feel at night, often to where I must drink myself to sleep or find a one-night stand just so I don't feel alone, is him, or them, watching me. I was eight years old when it first happened. You awaken in a panic. Something is not right, and you know it. Something is close. Something is in here with you. You try to scream, but your mouth won't move. Soon you discover that you cannot move your body either. All of the straining and the willpower only lets you blink, or maybe move an index finger if you're lucky. There is no escape from this. Soon you see them. Something in here with you. Something that isn't human. You try to scream for your mom and dad in the next room, but you can't even make a noise. And then you see them. If you could scream, you would do it now. They don't walk. They glide. Moving over to your bed, they look down on you. Their elongated bodies, some horrific caricature of the human form. You know their intent is malevolent. You can feel it, sense it, even though you're just a child. The stark white light of the full moon screams through your windows, and their sick, long frames dance in front of it. Your sister's in the same room, and you wish through hot tears that you could make enough noise to wake her up so she could save you. But you can't do a goddamn thing. One of them comes right up to your face, his giant black empty eyes right in yours, and he puts his finger to his lips. He knows you want to scream. And that is the last thing you remember. You wake up the next day, slightly fuzzy and beat up. If you were old enough, you'd say this felt like a hangover. Gingerly, you descend the stairs to where your parents are eating breakfast chatting boorishly about the events the day holds in store. After a few minutes, you cannot withhold it any longer. You tell them what you saw last night. They shoot one another pained, dark glances. Their beliefs tell them about this. Soon enough, they explain to you that Satan hates people who believe in Jesus. So Satan sends demons to persecute people who believe in the Lord. Those were demons in your bedroom last night, son. This is no consolation. The Prince of Darkness hates me, personally, with such fervor that he's sending his horrifying minions to come and get me every night. Great. The visitations go on for almost ten years. One night, they get so bad that my father calls my grandfather, who's a Baptist minister, and asks for advice. Subsequently, my dad anoints me with oil, and covers my doorframe with a blessing so nothing may enter. But they don't enter through the door. No. This is just going to make them angrier. He prays over me and kisses my forehead. I drift off to sleep. What the hell is that noise? How can noise have a pressure? It feels like it's crushing me into my bed. Nothing can be this loud. I managed to roll over onto my back. Oh God, 
The fucking face is as big as my ceiling. The eyes are huge, and I cannot look away. Please, someone help me. Sometime later, you're reading online about a psychological condition known as sleep paralysis. It all sounds very familiar. The pressure, the visitors, the terror. All of a sudden, it all falls into place. This wasn't spiritual. No demons or no aliens. You simply have a broken brain. This is just a glitch in the system. A spanner in the works. And with this realization, it all stops. You never see them again. But for the rest of your life, all of your girlfriends ask you why you sleep facing the wall with the blankets covering your head. And you don't really want to tell them. I live just outside of a rural town in Vermont. It's a tight-knit community where everyone knows one another and people don't lock their doors at night. There's never been any need to. A little over a year ago, I woke up because I heard a loud banging on my front door. At the time, my husband and I lived in a small home on a dirt road, just off the rural route in the town. It was the middle of a snowstorm. And the nearby hills get very slippery in the snow, so I thought that someone might have been in an accident or broke down. It's happened before. When I looked out the window, I could see that our motion spotlight was on. I could see that there were footprints in the snow that had come from our road and into our driveway, but there was no car anywhere. The snow was still covering the road, and no one had driven on it for at least a couple of hours. Our front door was obscured by the window but I could see that someone was standing there. I wasn't sure what to think, so I woke my husband up just to feel safer. While I was telling him what was going on, the banging on the door started again, and my husband went to answer it while I stood in the hallway. When he opened the door, there were two children standing in the snow looking toward the ground. There was a boy and girl, and could not have been more than eight years old. They were dressed strangely and had odd haircuts. The girl's hair was very long and straight, that looked almost like a bowl cut. They weren't dressed for winter, and my first thought was that they must have been Mennonite children, but as far as I know, there was never a large community of Mennonites near us. Thinking back on it, I know that my normal reaction to seeing children in a snowstorm would have been to rush them inside and bundle them up with some blankets and hot cocoa, but that's not how this felt. The children were very unnerving. They would not make eye contact, and when my husband asked them if everything was okay, they just asked if they could come in. My husband looked at me like, what do I do? And I asked the kids where their parents were. They'll be here soon, is all they said. It was around 2 o'clock in the morning at this point, so the only reasonable thought in my head was that there must have been an accident or that these kids got lost. As much as my instincts told me not to bring them inside, I did anyway. I went into the kitchen to make them some hot cocoa, while my husband took them into the living room. While I was fixing the kettle, I could hear my husband talking to the kids. He was asking them if they were okay, where they came from, how far they walked, if their parents' car was broken down, things like that. But they always answered, 
Our parents will be here soon. They spoke in a sing-song voice. They weren't afraid to be in a stranger's home at all. I started to notice that our cats, we had four, were all hiding except Pigeon, who was in the kitchen with me. Normally our cats are very curious and friendly, and we have to be careful that they don't run out the door when we leave. This time, none of them even tried to see who was here, which I thought was very strange. All of the hair on Pigeon's neck was standing up, and his tail was puffed up while he was looking in the living room. When I bent down to pet him and see what was wrong, he hissed and started growling and backed up until he had hit himself under the kitchen island. I had never seen him do that before. When I walked back into the living room, the kids were sitting on the couch as still as can be, but my husband was holding his head in his hands. I asked him what was wrong, and he just said that he felt very dizzy all of a sudden, but that he was fine. I turned back to the children to give them their cocoa, but when they looked at me, I gasped. It took everything inside of me not to drop the mugs and run away. When they looked at me, their eyes were completely black. They had no whites, just giant black pupils. When they saw that I was scared, they stood up and asked if they could use the bathroom. I tried to be as composed as I could be and showed them down the hall. They went into the bathroom together, and I hurried back to my husband and asked if he had seen their eyes. He had seen them too, and said it looked like his brother's badly bruised eyes after a car accident. We were in the middle of talking about whose children they could be, when my husband's nose started to bleed. He never had nosebleeds as long as I had known him. I just knew that this had something to do with the kids in the bathroom, and I started crying while I ran to get my husband some tissues. That's when the power went out. I heard my husband yell my name from the living room as I started to walk back through the hallway and stopped dead in my tracks. The two children were standing at the end of the hallway. They weren't moving, and I have never been so scared in my whole life. They just stood there in the dark. After what felt like forever, the boy said, Our parents are here, and they walked to the door, opened it, and walked out, leaving it wide open. My husband jumped up to go close it and almost fell over. We looked out the window and saw two men standing by a black car idling at the end of our driveway. The men looked like they were wearing black colored suits and were very tall, at least six feet. When my husband waved at them, they just stared at us, got into the car and drove off. Our power came on half hour later, but nothing was the same after that. Over the next few months, three of our cats went missing. We can only assume that they ran away somewhere and never came back, but the worst thing was coming home to find Pigeon in a puddle of blood on the living room floor. He looked like he had been vomiting blood. After my husband's nosebleeds became a regular occurrence, we went to see the doctor. He didn't know what to make of it other than dry nasal passages, but my husband was diagnosed with an aggressive skin cancer. When the doctor asked us if he used tanning beds, we both thought he was joking, but apparently this kind of melanoma is linked to overuse of indoor tanning. The doctors think he will recover, but don't understand how it got so bad so quickly. My husband has never worked an outdoor job and spends relatively little time in the sun. Since we let the black-eyed kids inside our home, 
I've also suffered from regular dizzy spells and nosebleeds on a regular basis. I've had other issues which I won't mention here, but trust me when I say, I'm suddenly in the worst condition of my life and no one can do anything about it. I know that all this is because I let the black-eyed children into my home. We told everyone we could about the strange kids that showed up that night, but no one else saw them, and some laugh at how scared we are of them. But I know what we saw. I wish my husband had never opened the door. A few years back, my girlfriend and I, having hiked several other parts of the Appalachian Trail, decided we wanted to give the southern portion of Virginia's trail a shot. It is about 166 miles long and runs through George Washington and Jefferson National Forests from Roanoke County to Parisburg and Giles County. This is definitely one of the more remote and less traveled parts of the trail, which is exactly what we were looking for. We gathered our gear and made our way to the start of the Virginia Creeper Trail to begin our journey. We had planned our journey to end at Damascus and figured that by the time we got there, we'd be more than ready to get home to our own beds. It was early October and the changing of the leaves and colors were amazing. The air was crisp and cool, perfect hiking weather with beautiful scenery. The majority of the trip was pretty uneventful, just your typical hike, but our last couple of nights is where things got weird. On this portion of the trail, you were supposed to camp on the trail or a designated shelter. We didn't really want to run into other people and didn't want anyone coming up on us in the middle of the night. We decided to ignore those suggestions and find our own little spot off the trail. A little searching around and we found a spot a little ways off the trail in the middle of a small clearing. It was perfect. We set up camp, cooked some food, talked for a while, and then snuggled up and went to sleep for the night. Somewhere around 2am, I was awoke by my girlfriend shaking me and telling me, Get your gun. Someone is outside, walking around our tent. She informed me that she woke up to what sounded like someone right outside the tent, running a knife or something along the side while circling us. When hiking, I carry a 1911 and a judge with me. You never know exactly who or what you might run into when on such a long hike in a remote location. I got the judge out of my pack, and then we sat silently listening for any sounds. A few minutes of nothing but the breeze blowing through the trees, and then I heard it. Someone or something walking in the woods behind our tent. I got the flashlight and silently made my way out of the tent. Our fire had went out, so it was nearly pitch black, illuminated by only the dim glow of the October moon. I told my girlfriend to stay put while I checked it out. I didn't flick the flashlight on right away so as to not give away that I was out of the tent and have it become a shining beacon of my location. Instead, I waited to hear more noises. After a few minutes, it sounded like it was bipedal based on the way the steps were paced. I turned on the flashlight and flooded the area with light. I thought I saw someone move behind a tree. I yelled out and told them to go away and that I was armed. I kept the light on the area with my gun drawn 
and slowly approached towards the area where I thought I saw the figure. Then, from my right, I hear what sounds like someone running away through the woods. I spin and face my light that way, and then from the original spot, hear who or whatever was there take off into the woods. There's no way I'm giving chase, so I return to the campsite. I tell my girlfriend about what happened, and I end up sitting guard outside the tent in the darkness until daybreak. In the morning, I looked around a bit for signs of who or whatever it was, and I discovered a boot print in some soft moist dirt not far from our tent. It wasn't mine, and it wasn't my girl's. This freaked me out, as it confirmed that someone, perhaps more than one, was skulking around our tent in the dark. I kept it to myself because I didn't want to freak my girl out any more than she already was. At this point, we were pretty deep in and still had two days left. That day, we walked a little faster than normal and covered as much ground as possible. When it came time to set up camp, I found a spot near a cliff where we could place the tent in a small overhang and prevent anyone from coming up behind us. The whole day up to this point, I had a feeling we were being followed. I had no confirmation of this, as I hadn't seen or heard anyone else, but it was just a gut feeling. We set up camp and made some food, and then retreated to the tent. I gave my girl the 1911, and I kept the judge right next to me, and I assured her that if I slept at all, it would be with one eye open. After a while, she drifted off to sleep, and I stayed awake, listening to the sounds of the woods at night. I was awake for a few hours, just waiting to see if anything was going to happen. At some point, I guess my exhaustion caught up with me, and I drifted off. I awoke sometime later, to what sounded like someone going through our stuff outside the tent. I grabbed my gun and woke my girlfriend, shushing her to be quiet. From the faint glow of the fire... I could see someone's silhouette against the tent. There was really someone out there. I yelled out to them, something along the lines of, We are armed. Get the fuck out of here. They dropped what they were doing and bolted. I came out of the tent, gun drawn and ready to shoot someone. Our stuff was strewn all about. They had rummaged through quite a bit of our stuff. I walked to the edge of the woods, in the direction whoever was out there had fled. There was a creek nearby, and I walked to the edge, where there was a small trail running alongside it. Down the creek, I could see a light. It looked like a lantern the way it flickered. Then I saw three more emerge from the other side of the woods. I told my girlfriend to start packing up whatever she could and that we were leaving. Now. We packed up everything of value, left the tent and a few other items, and headed back onto the trail in the middle of the night. I kept hearing people talking off in the woods and hearing branches snap for quite some ways. I kept looking behind us every few seconds to make sure nobody was coming up on us. It was completely nerve-wracking. If something happened, we were still a long ways from anywhere and quite literally on our own, since we hadn't seen another hiker the entire time we'd been out there. I really felt we were in serious danger. We had been walking for quite some time when I heard something in the woods behind us. As we rounded a corner, I turned around and saw someone step onto the trail and just stand there watching us. It was just as the sun was coming up and barely any light. I couldn't make out any features, 
just the silhouette. I stopped and looked at them for a second and asked them who they were and what they wanted. They just stood there silently, watching us and then turned around and walked back into the woods. We picked up the pace and kept going, looking back every so often. We didn't see them again, but my gut told me they were still there for quite a ways. We eventually reached the end of the trail and got to where we had parked my girlfriend's car, extremely exhausted. We made it out of Virginia woods without becoming a meal for a clan of cannibalistic inbred hillbillies, which is what I pictured happening in my head the whole time. I have no idea who they were or what they wanted. Maybe it was just someone messing with us. Maybe it was really a clan of deformed hillbillies who were hunting us. I will never know because I will not be returning to find out. A year or two ago, I started running an out-of-school care program in an elementary school. This is a sort of program where we take kids whose parents work too early or too late for them to be safely dropped off or picked up from school. We would give them snacks, play games, crafts, that sort of thing. I began my work very early in the morning and end very late, often being the only one opening and closing the school. The school I work at is in a residential area, however, it's still quite isolated due to the size of the field and trees surrounding the border between the road and the school field. I often walk to work as I live quite close. This particular event occurred in the early spring, March or April, so it is still very dark at 6 in the morning. So, like every other day, I begin my walk to work. Nothing out of the ordinary, the streetlights still glowing from the night before. I walk through the tree line, across the pitch black field and up to the school, barely lit from the subpar security lighting outside. I make my way around the school to the back door I'm supposed to use. Funny, the light in the main hallway is on. Guess the caretaker forgot that one. I unlock the door and step in, only to find the silent alarm has been set. Weird. I walk around the bottom floor, checking the classrooms, bathrooms, and offices. Nothing looks disturbed. I turn off the alarm and go about turning on lights and setting up for the morning. My program is located in a small classroom at the back end of the school. I go to unlock the door to see it's already unlocked. I slowly proceeded inside and flick the lights on. I look around the room. Nothing's really out of order, except some markers and coloring sheets have been left out, along with some toys scattered about the play area. I figure my coworker Rita must have forgot to tidy up and lock it when she left. I had left early and she was still new. Perhaps she forgot to go through our closing checklist before leaving. I had a client who required her child to be dropped off around 6.30am rather than the regular 7am start, so for a fee, I would take her child a bit earlier as I was there by then anyway. She was a small girl, around 6 years old at the time, with big brown eyes and blonde hair. Let's call her Julie. I hear the familiar buzzer sound at 6.30 that signals Julie's arrival. I walk through the lonely halls to the front door. I look through the glass to see Julie and her father waiting patiently for me. With a smile on my face, I open the door wide and greet the child warmly. 
she takes my hand and we walk down the hall to the staff kitchen to prepare a morning snack for the children. We began getting ready when Julie asks to use the bathroom. Usually, the children have to go in pairs, but I said go ahead anyway. Julie makes her way out of the kitchen into the bathroom a few feet away. I can hear her, so I continue with my preparations. I hear her humming, I hear her talking to herself. And then I hear someone answer. I hear a man answer. I ran to the bathroom, only to see Julie in the presence of a very skinny, disheveled man, covered in blood. His hair matted and slicked onto his oily forehead, glaring at us from his hiding place. I grabbed the child and made a mad dash down the hallway. We run into our room. I slam the door, locking it behind me. I scan the room for anywhere to hide. The storage closet. I grab Julie's hand and we run inside, slamming the door behind us. As we sit huddled and shaking, I search my person for my phone to call someone. Anyone. Damn it, I left it in the kitchen. But I must stay calm. Julie is shaking and crying at this point, and I have to stay calm for her. The police will come and get him, I whisper to her, trying everything I can think of to calm this terrified child. We just have to stay very quiet. Julie covers her mouth with her hands and nods. We can hear, through the door, the man muttering and cursing to himself, his voice growing louder and more audible as he came closer to our sanctuary. Poor Julie, she just couldn't contain herself any longer and began letting out great loud sobs. At this point, I believe he heard us and we began to hear someone jiggling the door handle. I put my hand over her mouth in an attempt to stifle her cries, but to no avail. After a few moments, the jiggling stopped. Silence now, except Julie's stifled cries. A few minutes pass. Maybe he's gone. Maybe this whole ordeal is over. Then, out of nowhere, he begins throwing himself against the door, screaming nonsense and curses. I decide it's just a matter of time before the crappy lock on the door breaks and we are all his. I hold Julie close and shut my eyes, waiting for the inevitable. We're trapped. We can't get out. Just then, a loud ringing fills the air. The fire alarm. My cooking must have set it off. Soon, the sounds of sirens start outside. Julie and I creep from our hiding spot. No more noise from the man. We slowly open the door to see the hallway full of smoke. We scuttle to the nearest exit and make our way to the firefighters outside. I tell them about the man and the whole ordeal. The police end up capturing him in the corner of a classroom, crying and rocking back and forth. Apparently, he is a father of a child who attends the school, who had been restrained from seeing her due to mental illness and drug problems. I still work at the school, but Julie left after the incident and I haven't seen her since. Nothing like this has happened again, and hopefully never will. When I was 13, my buddy Jake and I would spend a lot of time exploring and messing around in the forests and mountains that surrounded our town. We would often go on night hikes, sometimes for hours when there was a full moon. 
It was on one of these nights that had the most fucked up, terrifying experience of my life. A place we would often hang out were these old ruins that sat at the bend of an old fire road. There were two buildings. One was a sort of smaller shack, and the other was a two-story brick structure without a roof. Apparently, they were once used for logging or something. There was some funny graffiti painted on the walls. One of my favorites read, Casey can't give a blowjob. And under it, in a different color and cursive, was, No, Brian, you just have a small dick. I never really paid attention to some of the other graffiti, a lot of which was creepy-looking symbols and long paragraphs of complete gibberish in red that took up entire walls. During the end of our summer break, there's a full moon out. It was a harvest moon when the moon shines bright orange in the night sky. We decide to go out and head over to the ruins, build a little fire and look at the stars. We invited my neighbor and her friends to come with us, probably to try and play truth or dare or some shit. They were in our grade, and I thought her friend was cute, but they said it was too creepy out, and although they thought it sounded fun, decided they didn't want to go. To this day, I am beyond thankful that we didn't pressure the girls to go with us. I know deep down that some horrible shit could have happened if they did. So it's like 9pm, and I meet Jake by his house at the edge of a trail that led to the fire road which was a few miles up the mountains and into the forest. We both had backpacks with water and food, flashlights and stuff. We never really used the flashlights unless we were trying to get through some difficult terrain. We enjoyed relying on the moon and starlight to guide us. About an hour into our journey, things started to get odd. Everything just felt different. I'd gone to the ruins at night a handful of times before this trip and never felt weird. The woods just seemed way too quiet. Although Jake didn't say anything, he seemed kind of uneasy as well. But neither of us was going to say I'm scared and bitch out, so we continued right along. We round a bend, and the ruins come into view about a 100 yards away. We're surprised to see the glow of a fire reflecting off the walls of the brick building, and we can hear voices coming within. This wasn't the first time we had encountered people out here at night. We once ran into some older kids smoking weed that turned out to be cool and paid us five bucks for some cliff bars. This felt different. Jake and I both slowed our pace. For what reason, I don't know, but it was like our instincts were telling us to be cautious. I grabbed Jake's shoulder and we both crouched down on the path. We should hike up the ravine so we can get a better look at who's in there from above, I said, and Jake nodded in agreement. We stealthily make our climb up a slope and stick to the shadows as we approach the ruins. The closer we get, the clearer the voices become, and we can now hear that people are chanting and repeating with a louder voice is saying. We looked at one another, and each of our faces reflected a look of creeped out confusion. I think both of us wanted to get the fuck out of there at that point, but we both just had to see what was going on inside those ruins. We slid up behind a boulder and looked down into the brick building. Inside, there were about eight people, men and women. Some were wearing creepy-ass animal masks, 
Others were bare-faced with ghostly white makeup on. All of them were wearing black. Two were smoking what looked like a meth pipe. The most fucked up thing was this one dude that had a big fucking antler headdress thing. Straight up devil cult shit right out of a movie. He was leading the chant, and they were all circled around a bunch of candles, set in a pattern with a big book, next to a dead fucking black cat in the middle. Jake and I looked at one another, and neither of us needed to say a word. We both slowly retreated back and made our way down the ravine. We walked at a steady pace, crouched down and kept close to the slope side of the trail, staying within the shadows. We come to that bend, where the ruins first come into view, and as we're about to pass it, we both hear the sounds of approaching footsteps. There's literally nowhere to go. If we try to climb up the slope, the noise would easily be heard by whoever was coming towards us. So we just plaster ourselves against the rocky slope and tried to stay completely still in the dark. I watch the light begin to grow as it comes around the bend. Jake and I are both silent. Neither of us are breathing. I pull out a collapsible knife from my pocket and fold out the blade. My hand is fucking shaking. My senses are completely peaked. I've never felt such a flood of adrenaline in my entire life. The footsteps get louder and the light grows larger until a skinny 20-something pale guy wearing all black and carrying one of those battery-powered lanterns walks into view. His face was completely illuminated by the lantern. His face was riddled with scabs, and his mouth was hanging open, revealing brownish fucked-up teeth. Clearly a meth freak. He's about ten feet from us, walking briskly toward the ruins. For a second, I felt like he wasn't going to see us, but then he just froze. I'm guessing his peripheral vision noticed the two shadowy figures crouching in the dark to his right. I honestly think the guy was more terrified than we were. Jake and I knew he was coming, but he had no fucking idea we were there. He had that deer-in-the-headlights look on his face, completely shocked and startled. The lights on his lantern were weak, so Jake and I were only somewhat illuminated. There was this moment of complete stillness as we just stared at one another. There was no wind, no sound, and all I could feel was my heart pounding like a fucking jackhammer. It was like the world had fucking stopped. And then me and Jake just fucking blitzed the guy. We both smashed into him, and I guess it must have been the adrenaline, because we sent this dude fucking flying, almost sending him down a steep ravine. He cries out, literally screams at the top of his lungs, and Jake and I just start sprinting down the fire road. At this point, everything gets somewhat blurry. The adrenaline high made me sort of black out for like a minute. Although my memory is kind of foggy, this is what I remember happening. We are sprinting down the fire road, and the guy is screaming for help. For a second, I honestly thought I stabbed the dude when we attacked him, but I glanced down at my knife, and thankfully the blade was clean. I remember hearing Jake saying, Fuck, fuck, fuck! as we booked it down the path. After the bend where we pushed the dude down, there's a long section of trail that kinda resembles a U and leads from one bend to the other. As we are halfway to the bend, I look back and see four people chasing after us with flashlights. We round the bend still sprinting as fast as we possibly could, then both scramble up the hillside and onto a thin deer trail 
that runs adjacent to the fire road from above. We slow down to sort of a jog, as we are trying to keep quiet and lose these fucking Satanist meth fiends. After a few minutes, we stop and catch our breath. We are both panting like dogs. Honestly, I could hardly breathe. Dude, what the fuck? What the actual fuck? Jake said, completely trembling from the whole ordeal. I thought I fucking stabbed the guy, bro. I said, with my hand white knuckled still gripping the knife. A few minutes pass, and we hear people arguing down on the fire road, about a hundred yards or so behind us. We stealthily make our way back towards Jake's house. About thirty minutes later, we hear the distant sound of cars starting and tearing out of a parking lot that is a ways down in the valley at the other end of the fire road. And neither of us stop moving until we pass through Jake's back door, and we both literally collapse onto his kitchen floor, completely fucking exhausted and covered in dirt. Jake's older brother strolls in and laughs at us for laying there like idiots, but he notices the terrified look on our faces and calls his dad to come downstairs. We tell Jake's dad about what happened. He calls the cops and they show up. Don't really believe us or care. Actually, pointed out that we pretty much assaulted the guy and tell us to contact the park rangers and then leave. Ranger comes by the next day, says he'll check it out, and didn't hear shit from him. Jake and I gave up hiking at night, and I never went back to that fucking place ever again. Coming from the Midwest, you anticipate that you're going to run into some unusual people and things out in the city. Los Angeles definitely doesn't disappoint. Whether it's getting held at gunpoint outside of my apartment, or seeing a homeless man get run down in the streets of Tytown, all things that I'm not used to coming from Indiana. I'm a dime a dozen out here. I came to Los Angeles to pursue the arts like every other schmo around. The trick about this city is finding a job where you can actually keep afloat while maintaining some sort of flexibility so that you can accommodate the volatile life of auditions and meetings. Uber and Lyft are the perfect solution. When you sign up for both platforms to drive, you're told that you'll likely get some unruly folks and what to do in said situation. I carry a small knife on me, and even though you're not supposed to have a weapon, just try and think of how much of a disadvantage you're at if someone is sitting right behind you. If you need proof, watch that video of the former Taco Bell executive Psycho wailing on the Uber driver in Orange County. Yikes. I've been driving for both services for about a year, and I've never really had an incident. Sure, a drunk UCLA student tried to punch out my backseat window on a Friday night, but we've all been there, right? But everything changed recently, and I haven't driven since my encounter with the person I'm going to tell you about. I met her two weeks ago. 11.45 on a Wednesday night. Out here, it doesn't matter what night it is, people are out and about, and you rarely have to wait long for a ride. I was parked on Santa Monica when I got the request. Pick up Carol, located .4 miles away. Okay, let's do this, Carol. I arrive at the address given, but no one is outside. Not unusual. I begin messing with the radio and getting the aux cord set in case Carol wants to play some sweet jams. And that's when the rear right side door opens. I look back, and I'm confused. Carol is old. Like, early 80s at least. 
Odd to see someone in this demographic this late on a Wednesday night, but I've had others in the age range, so I write it off as not a big deal. How's it going tonight, Carol? I ask. No response. She struggles in and shuts the door behind her. I glance in my rearview mirror and study her face. No emotion whatsoever. Almost as though Will Smith has just flashed the neuralizer in her face. Where are we headed tonight? No response. Can she hear me? Does she not speak English? Then my phone beeps. New destination entered. 1900 North Vermont Avenue. I throw the car and drive. It's not a lengthy car ride, but I'll figure I'll try one more time. It's usually pretty easy to gauge if someone wants to chat or not. Are you from Los Angeles? I ask in one last attempt. I glance in the rearview mirror, and she's staring right at me. Her gauge is piercing me. In a deep, shrill voice, she answers. I wouldn't worry about that. Okay, lady, I get it. I'll just drive you to your destination. We're a ways off from her destination when she speaks up. Drop me off at the next corner. I look up in the rearview mirror, her eyes still upon me, and I ask, Are you sure? We're still a mile. Just stop at the next corner, she snaps at me. I pipe the fuck down. My full-blooded Norwegian father didn't command that kind of attention when he spoke up in a room. I wanted her out of my car, so I was happy to oblige and stop. I pull off on a quiet corner a few blocks off Fountain Avenue. I slightly turn my head to look over my right shoulder to say something like, Have a good night. But as I turn my head, I see that she's leaned up in between the seats, just inches from my face. I freeze. I can't speak. I can't look at her. Only down at the median, in between the driver's and passenger seats. Her breathing is something I'll never forget. It was deep breaths and such a strange cadence. Almost like an irregular heartbeat. And my eyes finally met hers. I'm terrified. Her touch was ice cold. I was wearing my Colts hoodie. And her fingers felt almost like ice directly in contact with my skin. Her eyes weren't black wide open, or any other cliché of a maniac, but sad, almost motherly. My terror shifted. Before I could say anything, and before she stepped out of my car, she said three words that forever changed my life. Take the stairs. I stared back at her with a look that said, Excuse me? She didn't repeat herself, but leaned back in a way and exited my car. I sat there watching her slowly waddle away into a beat up apartment building and then out of sight. What the hell was that? I wasn't going to give any more rides that night. I turn off the app and drive back to my apartment in Koreatown. Currently that's where I'm sitting, my head still in my hands trying to comprehend what happened. I stumbled into the back door of my 8th floor apartment building that night. I live on the 7th floor. This place has been standing since the late 1940s. By the time I come in, it's around 12.30, and not even thinking, I hop on the back stairwell. Usually I'm lazy as hell, and I take the rickety old elevator. I get to the fourth floor when I hear it. An engineer had done repairs the day before, and I remember the note slid under our doors from the beginning of the week. April. A beautiful girl on the 8th floor had hopped on the elevator to get her laundry out of the dryer 
right at the same time I had gotten home. Two of the main cables snapped, and the elevator crashed violently down to the ground floor. Seven stories. April's family came and got her stuff a week ago, and I was still thinking about Carol's warning. Take the stairs, 